0: Jason bailey Losh, and you're listening to Scene is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond Today's guest is Emily Mast Emily's an amazing performance artist and she schooled me in performance in general I truly thank Emily for taking the time to be on the show and give such an amazing uh, interview as soon as it got done I had written a friend and I had said you know what? I think I need to put this out immediately. It was one of the best interviews that I had done. The reason I have not been around and you have not heard a podcast in a very long time now from me is because, uh, I've been in the studio. I've been making work. The reason I've been making work is because it is my ground. It's my center and it makes me um, comfortable and happy in this moment where so much shit is going on. I needed something to, um, keep my center. And that was about me being in the studio, making work, and being happy in the studio and making sure that I was making progress in what I was doing. So you're going to hear more podcasts coming up. This is one with Emily Mast, who is absolutely amazing. And I really thank her for the time that she took to be on the show. There's Emily. Okay, Emily, mm-hmm. welcome to the show. Thanks. <laughs> we just spent the last 20 <laughs> minutes with me trying to figure out what I was doing wrong with the uh, the microphones and the PA system, and it turns I left the speakers on in my studio.
1: And you spray-painted your hand I, while you were looking so, for a solution. So
0: now I shut the door, and it smells like spray-painted here as well, too. <laughs> so I apologize. Thank you for being patient with me. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We met, and I like to give background to everybody when we're actually having this conversation so they know how... I know everybody here. We just met a few months ago, and mm-hmm. it was at a baby shower. Yeah. For uh, John Houck and his wife, Leah. Yeah. I don't even know if you fully introduced yourself, like, with no. your last name. We just masked. went straight into parenting talk. Yeah. So I didn't know who you were as an artist when I was talking to you, and I, we were, like, dishing out parenting advice back and forth. Yeah. Then I found out who you actually were, and I was like, oh, my God. The first work I had seen of yours, I actually didn't see a performance. I saw the remnants of a performance. Mm-hmm. To give the listeners, I guess, background, you're a performance artist. Yes, and I
1: say performance maker.
0: Okay, what's a but why? What's the difference?
1: Because I think when you say performance artist, people often imagine sort of naked, bloody person <laughs> like some horrible
0: vision of like what performance is
1: someone wearing a wig i i mean performance artists is usually in their own performances i would say and at you're least not that's, that's where generally the goes. in your own performances generally i'm
0: not now i will i have a conversation about that in a little bit because i watched uh, a bunch of your videos of your performances and i did see you participate in these in a certain way but we'll get to that in a minute I Did in a few. you are a performance maker but mm-hmm. you left remnants behind that looked to me and me as a, me being, a, I am a sculptor mm-hmm. as a really fully finished sculptural piece mm. on the floor. And it was probably, and I saw this at, um, China art objects. Mm-hmm. What was the show that it was?
1: That was called this sentence and it was curated by Lauren MacLaren public fiction.
0: Right. So something that was pretty amazing about this, uh, specific installation and the, the show was that a new piece would be, or new pieces would be added to it each week. Right. And so you didn't have a full show until the end of the show when all the pieces were coming together. Do you want to explain it a little bit?
1: Sure. Yeah. So that piece is called Index. And basically what I was doing was that it it had been performed in Paris twice um, in two different venues. And my thought was, how can I take sort of the, because I work in scores or in little vignettes. And I've been doing that since 2012. For what reason? Because I think that's how my brain works best. I'm... I'm sort of a nearsighted artist in the sense that I see details and then I have to kind of put them together in order to start to understand things.
0: So, do you take a bunch of little pieces? Yes. Do you know that they're going to correspond to begin with before you start putting those little pieces? Or you just no. start? No. You just know you have to do these actions and you have to find these little it's pieces. It's just
1: sort of like there's all these little remnants of interest that I know that I have to dig into and then somehow. With time and juxtaposition, they start to click. And there's together. a
0: storyline that revolves through all of them somehow, or
1: narrative. Yeah, is not really my best friend. <laughs> Everything is pretty non-linear and could um, be swapped around and reordered. Usually, um, so it's more about like what the, like like how the salad makes sense together. You know what I mean? Like how all the ingredients fit together. But you might be able to put the salt in first or last. Do you spoken. do that?
0: If you mix up like this piece. So it's three different locations.
1: Yeah, it's three different locations. Um, in Paris, it was with two dancers. And in Los Angeles, it was with a dancer and a, um, a performer who's sort of dancer Lee. And in Paris, it was done in a nightclub called Silencio, which was designed by David Lynch the first time. Right. Um, and it's this really, really beautiful space uh, that is composed of all these little rooms that he designed that are very... Um, Oh, there's a nice helicopter. Yeah, you hear that over the top of us? <laughs> As I'm talking about David Lynch. Um, <laughs> but there's these like very cinematic, beautiful, sexy spaces in, in that, um, in, in Silencio, but they're also quite small. Um, what I was saying about Index was I kind of decided to take uh, a bunch of the vignettes or the gestures that come from my larger performances and put them together. And I sort of considered all those parts of a sort of vocabulary that I then rearranged for these different venues, if that makes sense. It does. Silencio was with these two performers, and um, one part of it was videotaped, uh, and the other part was live. So there was a cinematographer who was following the performers through this throughout the spaces. And the reason why I made that choice was because number one, it felt like a movie set, and number two, because the spaces were so small, there only about twenty people could. You wouldn't uh, be able to fit in it. but a company, yeah, the live, the live um, performers through the spaces. So in the main. I guess, hall, there's a stage. And then we screened this video portion on screen. So a lot, most of the people sort of saw it mediated, but they could also choose to see it live as well. So there was this sort of flux to the piece. Then I showed it at the Mona Bismarck American Center, also in Paris on the Seine. And this is like an old bourgeois, beautiful apartment with Five rooms and crystal chandeliers and like a parquet floor. Totally and different like scenario. Completely and set up, different yeah. scenario. And both of these are functioning as processions. So there's these, these performance like these vignettes get performed in different spaces and there's music that accompanies them. Um in Silencio it was it was just broadcast not what do you say, broadcast music? Uh the music played throughout the space, and in um, the Mona Bismarck, I actually took my sound equipment from room to room and followed the, the performers, and then we had like a lighting person who was following them as well. So,
0: I, I have so many questions. Specifically, I've been doing a lot of research thanks to you, <laughs> because we did a studio visit a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, before this, and you. I don't want to say you insisted on the studio visit, but you suggested that it would be helpful. And it was incredibly helpful. Right. I am not schooled in the art of performance. So I was like, if you come on the show, please help me, help me figure out where I need to be in this so we can actually have a conversation that's meaningful to you as well as to me and the audience as well too. Right, And it helps me long-term. So I just understand performance a whole lot better. You gave me this amazing email <laughs> with all of it's these really artists. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. It was so good. I'm going to read out names here after a bit, but you gave me, you didn't just give me the names of people. You gave me the links to reviews of the shows and why they were important. Then you gave me links to the videos so I could actually see the performances. Right. And then you gave me a list of your performances. And one of the remarkable things about your website, which I don't think we often have time enough, is that you provide the videos and documentation of the performances on your site. And often- People don't have an opportunity to see the video of the performance. Mm-hmm. Your video, though, particularly, and this is this is where we're going. I'm going with some of these questions too. The video documentation is a is a work in its own right that I see for your work. The cinematography in that is wholly different than if you were sitting in the audience watching it. Because I looked at the piece that you did. You were is it called? How do you pronounce this one? That was made in L.A. one. And It's just end, but with an E on the end, that's why people, I didn't know how to pronounce it. You can say end if you want. (laughs) I didn't know if it was some fancy art art word. Uh, (laughs) Watching
1: graffiti, actually. I saw the word end graffitied on a wall in Germany years and years ago, and so that's where that came from. What was the relation to this? Basically, that piece was made up of all these little texts that I've been collecting over the years, probably for like two decades. And then they were transformed and translated and interpreted into gesture. Um, that was one of the phrases and like a new beginning, which I'd seen graffitied on a wall in Berlin in like maybe 1999 or something oh, a long like it was time really, ago. yeah, a long, long time ago.
0: Okay. So my question coming out of this, and it's not even a question, it's sort of an observation that may lead into you being able to tell me why. One of the questions I had about this performance and how performance is reviewed later or how you document performance, the video that you're taking isn't simply documentation of the actual work. To me, it is not.
1: To me, it is.
0: It is because you focused in on, in this video, you focused in on individual moments that were happening where an object was placed on something or a hand was doing something. It wasn't.
1: Oh, you're maybe talking about the. So, okay. The night
0: gallery one is the one that I. I Okay, so
1: that is specific. That's a really specific piece because actually what you're seeing is the actual piece and the documentation at the same time. So with that piece, it's a little bit like Silencio, and what happened were with the performers performing and somebody following them oh. and then live broadcasting, so that was
0: so you cut the two things together mm-hmm. So how does that exist outside of uh, outside of what was shown I is, mean, is, what is, you is that s- the finished piece
1: no I mean, for me, the piece is the live performance, but what you saw is um Really good documentation. <laughs> I mean to, <laughs> really good in the sense that like it, it it gets you really close to what the experience was because that video well, no, was taken during the actual performance.
0: Well, but not even that it's close, it's that you're focusing on specific moments or actions that are taking place within the performance and it seems very there, there's a subjective. Well, subjective, but it feels like narrative almost mm-hmm. as well, too. Mm-hmm. So it's giving me sort of rules in watching right. or how to sort of approach it. And I would assume that if you're in a space when that is happening behind you projected on a wall, too. Right. And this is where I was talking about earlier, where you did take place in that piece mm-hmm. where you were
1: directing, directing
0: yeah. but like actively. So you had all these performers around you. And one of the and I'll, I'll give layman's example of like what I saw to begin with Mm -hmm. it was interesting because the beginning of this piece you have a a still camera and you show all the people walking into the space and it's sort of flowing around the camera so you never actually see the camera but you see the people flowing into the space then you have an uh an overview shot from up above and it's the crowd Mm -hmm. of people and there are there's a circle on the floor and there's objects within that circle
1: yeah there's two circles okay two circles and what I call the run, like almost like a runway
0: so right. So those those areas were essentially they were they were laid out, but also the audience was sitting directly around them, up to the point of almost touching those lines.
2: Right.
0: Then the performers were actually in the audience, so you didn't know who the performers were per se if you you weren't privy, and they were all wearing street clothes. Mm-hmm. And during the performance, they changed out of their street clothes and into the performing clothes in front of the audience. Right. You were. In that action, I don't think you changed clothes, though, did you? I didn't, no. Yeah, so I was paying attention. (laughs)
1: I'm thinking, like, I probably should have. That's not cool. (laughs) (laughs) I think
0: you were color-matching all of the people that were in there, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then you were giving direction to the camera people who were actually filming to have it projected behind on the back wall Mm -hmm. while the performance was taking place. I'd never seen anything like that. It was interesting to see the director in the performance taking an active role in the performance but still be outside of the performance right so tell me how that came about or why that or give me insight into the performance or talk to me about this a little bit
1: basically all of my work is is like a piece of clay <laughs> that I love to sort of rearrange and reconfigure for a new context the way that it existed at the hammer it's called the the, the complete title is end like a new beginning um, the way that it con- that it existed at the hammer was sort of spread out. Throughout the museum during Made in LA, and it was. Um, I asked to, uh, I think I used four different spots in the museum, and I, I wanted sort of more of the liminal spaces, the spaces that aren't usually used to show art in. So the video was projected at the top of the stairs. There was what I call a footnote video that was in that little that's in that alcove by the bathrooms on the second floor. Oh, yeah. There were two installations kind of in spots. Of so, what was the point of that? So the point of that was that, and then there were also unannounced live performances throughout the three months that it showed. They just take
0: place at any time of the day or Mm what? I
1: mean, obviously we pre-planned them because there were, I think, six performers at a time or anywhere between three and six. Well, you
0: would pre-plan, but the audience would, you wouldn't know when to go. the audience would not know. So you could be there on a Tuesday afternoon and all of a sudden it'd be happening.
1: Exactly. And and everything was held together in the same way that you saw it was held together at Night Gallery with this, this, this palette of sort of mustard yellows and butter yellow and um, like a warm chocolatey brown and like a butterscotch brown. It's a great palette. Yeah, it's a fantastic palette. Um, So the idea about spreading everything out was just that you would start to kind of associate things with each other. And there's this sort of idea of movements and images echoing each other and sort of producing almost like a deja vu uh, feeling. So for example, if you were watching the video, you might see a specific gesture that's being performed in the video in this like highly edited, highly constructed video that is actually filmed in the hammer. And then you might walk into the space and see that exact gesture being performed live.
0: But you wouldn't know when to look for it. You wouldn't know when to look for it. So, so it's very much accidental. So what is the point of not telling, like telling people when the performance were to have that deja vu moment where it's not a pre-planned thing?
1: Yeah. Like I... I it, so the whole like the premise of this i was like i said i was working with texts that were as old as 20 years old of your own of my own and sort of turning them in um interpreting them into gestures and those gestures were then reinterpreted back into texts which um which were published elsewhere in the la review of books um But there's all these layers. Did you announce
0: that they were being published in the LA Review of Books and stuff or not?
1: No, that wasn't part of it. That ended up kind of that like the way that these things happen are they just sort of they they are very organic. So this all happened. I didn't know that was going to the LA Review of Books things came after the fact. And actually Night Gallery, I think, even came shortly after the fact. But that wasn't that wasn't part of the Made in LA experience. That just was something that I decided to do with Mika and Davida a few months after I decided the to do The owners of Night Gallery. Yes. Right. The reason why there's all these layers and there's all this sort of confusion and there's this idea of things being in liminal spaces is I'm really interested in miscommunication and, the, and also like vagaries and how memory, for example, gets transformed with time. It's sort of like the fictionalization of memory fact our thing happens we remember it and then with each memory we're we're it's slightly transforming right there's no there's no way for it to ever be the way that 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 it actually happened do you know what i'm saying no
0: exactly it's like telephone the game right
1: it's it's like yeah
0: it changes as it goes through each person or as you the remnants are sort of different than what they started out exactly yes in in the lowest possible reference point i could actually make <laughs> sorry <laughs> <That> totally works <laughs> um
1: but the night gallery what we call an evening length performance so that's they you know in dance they call it an evening length performance which is when even if it's not the length of an evening i actually don't know why yeah they why call what's going that. on with that I, I have no idea i've just had to use it because of the if you ever work in a theater that's kind of the lingo that one must use but it could be 45 minutes and it's evening length so I decided to do that, and it was on July 5th. It, the reason why I mentioned that is because it was incredibly hot in that space, and that's kind of my main memory of the performance was just how fucking hot we all were, and really? we were like dripping sweat from our elbows. You couldn't and tell. Y- you can. If you're looking for it. Yeah, it's, we're pretty sick.
0: But in, it's not the thing that stands out. The things that stand out are the how the actors are choreographed within the space. Right. Their interactions with each other and those objects.
1: Like I was saying at the hammer, everything was really spread out. Yeah. My idea with the night gallery was it's to super condensed. Bring it all together yeah. to condense it to see how and if that functioned. It's always an experiment. Like what do you think? The, I I feel like that is one of my favorite performances. I was gonna okay.
0: I was waiting because I loved it. Yeah. I, I really, really, I really enjoyed it.
1: It was really special. I feel like it functioned in many ways a lot better than Made in L.A. did. Um, but Made in L.A. is, you know, basically. We've we already had
0: this conversation, so you know I'm a huge skeptic of performance work. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: for me to say that I really, I sat through the, the uh, whole video, too, and oh, it wow. made me it made me want to see more. Mm. So, I, in fact, I did. I went through all your stuff. But.
1: Cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's days of. Video footage.
0: They all hold up. They're all wholly different from each other, which was also remarkable to me. Mm. But you talking about, I wanted to get into this a little bit because something you just said uh, made me think about this. And the text and sort of the information that you passed on to me in that email, your interest in, what was the wording you used exactly? Your interest in not having things, being ambiguous or...
1: (laughs) I think I used the word vague. Vague, Um, okay. Miscommunication.
0: Miscommunication, but some of these artists. So as I'm going through the list of artists that you gave me, all sort of deal with that Mm -hmm. and it was a very it was a very distinct direction in performance it seems to me Mm -hmm. you can correct me if I'm wrong in that Mm -hmm. perform or the these artists are all sort of testing the boundaries of that type of thing right so uh, I'll lead I'll read the list sure and you can also
1: I I, I can't remember you gave
0: me uh Tino Segal Mm -hmm. Philip Perino
1: Philippe Pareno. <laughs> yeah. See, you
0: can you can also correct any of my pronunciations. I will have no issue with that. Uh Simon Forte.
1: Mm-hmm, Forti.
0: Okay. Xavier Leroy Leroy.
1: So that's Xavier Leroy. Uh, obviously they have a French fetish, but
0: Okay. Jerome Bell. hmm uh, I said that one right? Yes, you did. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can pronounce this one. Anne Theresa?
1: Yeah, and uh I actually pronounce it with the French An Anne Therese de Kursmaker. Okay, yeah. And I, she's Belgian, I believe.
0: Okay, that would make sense she showed at the wheels. Wells. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Carrie Tribe. Yes. I did that one right
1: too. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> so, who I was just telling made the best performance I've ever seen in LA. You
0: you did tell me that. Yeah. Which is awesome. Mhm. And was that the one that you gave Critical me mass. The, that wasn't With, the one at LAX?
1: It is, yeah.
0: That thing was So, you can find this online and you sent me a link to it. Mhm. It's really good. It's really good. Um, it is a conversation between two people having an argument, but the it's a is it a re somebody else? It's somebody else's piece.
1: It's somebody else's film, and I don't remember whose.
0: I will tell you. It is based on the classic 1971 film featuring actor. Oh, this is hers. Her actors were uh, Reed Wendell and Jasmine Woods. Mm-hmm. Hollis Frampton's groundbreaking experimental film, *Critical Mass*, from 1971. There we go captures an argument between a couple and it cuts up into a series of rhythmic, repetitive snippets. Hers was a recreation, a recreational live stage performance th- between these two actors having this conversation, an argument.
1: Right. The and best because the way that the, the the film was cut, you have all of these um, sort of stutter moments. It's
0: like the audio was like... And the argument takes place like that. It's intense. It's pretty amazing. It's
1: incredibly intense. And she found these amazing... How did Performers. they remember that? I have no idea. How did they remember <laughs> I that? I did talk to her about it, and she said that it was just an incredible amount of rehearsal. You're
0: dealing with, I'm looking at it now, uh, 22 minutes of performance mm-hmm. of that. And it is, you got to go online. It's on Vimo. You can look it up, but yeah. really a great piece. Is
1: that how do you pronounce it? Vimo?
0: I didn't pronounce any of these people's names correctly on the sheet, so do not (laughs) repeat anything I said. It could be Vimeo. I have no idea. I'm just going like say it with confidence and everybody believes you.
1: I'm usually the person who mispronounces things. (laughs) So
0: so, uh, getting back to the list that you gave me and Mm -hmm. this sort of idea of like sort of reassessing things or looking at a vagueness. I
1: actually just thought of something, because I'm writing, uh, I have to write about my work in French right now because I'm giving a lecture yeah. in a couple days in France, and actually in, in Monaco. And I was thinking about tattoos Uh huh. and how I don't have any.
0: Did you just see my tattoo or something? No,
1: it just, it, I don't. for some reason this keeps coming back to me, like why don't I have a tattoo? <laughs> and I think it's because it is a permanent image, and there's something about permanence that freaks me out and feels really hard and unwieldy personally. Like I wish that I could get a tattoo. But so do
0: you, do you think that's why you then break up your pieces into these sort of uh, these little moments that can be rearranged all the time so that yes. there is no distinct single way or like an individual unit?
1: Yes. It sort of like is related to this idea that I don't, much to the dismay of my friends and family, I really have a, a really hard time with the notion of truth Oh, in what way? I just don't believe in truth. Like I absolute truth. Absolute truth. I feel like everything can be a shade of gray. A shade of gray. And that's I feel like all of my work is is sort of based on this idea. And so anything that's fixed, I feel has to be deeply questioned. And Yeah. Right. Therefore the tattoo. I don't have one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've had I have a tattoo on my back. And your arm. And my, I have a tattoo on my arm that's visible. The one on my back is never visible, but it's big. Oh. It covers my entire back. But the reason it covers my entire back is because it's a cover up of a cover up. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I deal with it in the same way. The idea of this permanence, but for me, it's never quite right. Mm-hmm. So then I have it redone, and it has to be bigger. Yeah. Then I have it redone again, and then it has to be bigger. I, I'm finally at a point where I think I'm okay, but I'm not sure. Right. And this idea of like trying to figure out because you. You know, ultimately, too, you're a different person. So, this idea of like keeping something a remnant from like the past that is not you is a representation of you now is this weird thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, and my
1: favorite work of art, I think, ever of all time was Robert Rauschenberg's Erased de Kooning. What is that one? That's so, Robert Rauschenberg went to de Kooning's house and convinced him to give him, I think he was going to buy it. Oh, yes, it I remember the story. And he, he was given a piece of de Kooning's that he told de Kooning, I'm going to erase it basically because of who you are, and um, de Kooning said, okay, you can do it, but I'm going to give you a really hard one to erase. <laughs> oh, really? And the piece is a de Kooning that's been completely erased, and you can see like just the, the tiniest, rem- tiny little remnants yeah. of like, yeah. what it was. Mm-hmm.
0: It's pretty amazing. It's the best piece. That says a lot about you, too. It informs. You are about. super intense. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> a lot of people tell me that. Yeah. No, in the best way possible.
1: <laughs> Wait. So maybe I should get a tattoo and erase it.
0: That would be horrible. You imagine the amount of pain you go through, but that's life, right? Right. That's the whole, th- that's the story. Art is painful. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Wait, let me get to this list because there's a specific person on here that when I was thinking about this work and I went through and I read and I sort of looked at how it was sort of put together, it made me think about some of the things you were doing. The piece that was at the Armory in New York for Philippe yeah. Perino.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There was an interesting quote. This is out of the New York Times. But they, they quoted um, Solowit, the remark that an idea alone be a work of art.
1: That's Solowit who said it. Yeah, Solowit yeah. said that.
0: An mm-hmm. idea alone can be a work of art. But then they were referencing how Philippe went in and sort of produced his pieces where really they're, they're so all-encompassing. And this specific piece of the armory incorporated things that were outside of the armory, that were inside the armory, there was projection in the space. There's live performance. There's live performance, but there's much like some of the things that you're doing where there's remnants of the performance actually happening. But then there's a projection of the performance that you think it could be a remnant of something, Mm -hmm. but maybe it isn't. It actually isn't. But then you have this sort of history of you being in the thing at the same time and have it be a reference point. There's all these different things. But my question on this is, and the more I read about it is, and I sort of had taken notes on this was, he works very much in a way that there's no resolution. Mm -hmm. So that at the end of the entire thing, there's no, if you're asking a question or it poses a question to you, there's actually no answer to the question, which is completely fine. I don't think that you have to have a resolution to each question that you propose, because I think the questions can be just as powerful as the answer.
1: Right and you want to know what my stance is
0: well a little bit but the to a greater extent when you have something that is that basically scatter shots all over the place mm-hmm. and there's no focused direction does that become a problem for the viewer or does it become in some of the the critiques about him specifically as an artist too is that it's very cinematic or that it it's too much that way sometimes mm-hmm. so how do you feel about that and being a performance artist how does that affect you
1: Well, I should disclose that I assisted Philippe. I was his assistant for years. Oh, shit. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So So it's interesting I picked this one out of the bunch.
1: It's very interesting because that's, um, you know, I hadn't really thought, this was a long time ago when I lived in France, so this is maybe the early 2000s. I assisted him for three and a half years or something.
0: That's a long time.
1: Yeah, he was. it was the best job I've ever had. And obviously Um,
0: very influential. Very influential.
1: Kind of forgotten. I'd forgotten how much I had learned from him or sort of uh, uh, absorbed until I went to see that show at the Armory, which I think was last year. Yeah. And I was in New York for maybe six days, and I went and saw it three times. Really? And he happened to be there the first time, and I was just like, fuck, this is like the best thing you've ever done. And
0: It looked amazing.
1: It was phenomenal for me. Um, And actually, my husband came once or twice, and I remember like leaving and just feeling like I was floating. I was so inspired and he was completely dejected and it was like,
0: but you're, we should mention this. Your husband's an
1: artist. My well. husband's an artist, Carl Handel. Um, and he makes,
0: so he understands the world and your passion and everything. Definitely. Else
1: too. Yeah. And as, as, is as intense as I am, um, but in a different <laughs> way. But so my, my, my sort of, uh, uh, you know, I'm leaving and I'm on top of the world and he's just like depressed and I'm like, what's going on? And he said, I feel like he's done it all. Like, like I just I can't even. What am I gonna? Where yeah, do I, I go from here? I, I, how could I ever approach that? Like that was just so. Really? Yeah.
0: So it had totally different effects on both of you. Mm-hmm. But his was coming. We
1: both agreed that it was phenomenal. But
0: you're coming at it as different artists, right? Like different types of producers.
1: Right. And to get back to your question, I'm a drifter, and Carl is not. Carl wants. He will pose a question, and he will want an answer. And focus on it. He wants to get until from it's a, resolved. To be your A to Z. I can see that in his work too. And he's very thorough, and I'm much more of a sort of hyperlink thinker. Who I will go from, you know, one thought to another, to another to another. Yeah, and chase it. And for me, I I am. I don't know if I'm look. I, I think I'm looking for answers, not an answer, because I don't believe in the answer. Where this is that true thing, right? Right. So what I'm looking for, like for me, like if I'm making a piece. It's about having an experience with a group of people who I can learn something from. And I pretty much believe that I can learn something from anyone, but you know, these people are cast for a specific reason. And we, are kind of, we go on this journey together where we're learning and kind of constructing. For your actors and your pieces. Yeah, and we're constructing our own truths through movement and gesture and discussion and experiments.
0: Are they collaborators or not? Um, not necessarily.
1: Yeah, I think they are all collaborators. I pay them all it's, it is my sort of overall vision, but so much of what I do is who they are and what they know and how they approach the world. Right. Did I answer? You didn't
0: answer that also. We should probably like, I should actually ask that again. So (laughs) is that a, it it works for you as an artist Mm -hmm. and in the mode of production that you apply to your work, does it work for a viewer and does a viewer come back out of that? how does that i mean you you explained how it works for you and you explained how it works for your husband right but is there any is it problematic in any way
1: i think a lot of people i mean i i kind of a lot of people have trouble with it yeah a lot of people
0: and i guess that's what i'm getting at i don't necessarily have huge i i don't i'm sort of indifferent to it i think because i think some works can be good that way and other ones cannot right work right but there is there's an issue there and I'm not sure what it is. So that's what I'm trying to get at a little bit. Like, where do those issues come up and why is it an issue?
1: Well, I think what I try to do is basically propose a landscape for the viewer or the, 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 the audience to kind of enter into and get lost in. I always welcome this feeling of like getting lost in a world that I'm proposing. If you're able to let go and get lost, you will appreciate it.
0: Right, but if you can't let go,
1: if you can't let go, it'll be really hard.
0: And that's maybe and there's a, pro- a
1: lot of nonsense. But you know, maybe that's
0: a problem for the viewer and not for the creator.
1: I mean, I feel like, but
0: in a, in a way though, that I think like if you can't let go, that's a problem for you.
1: For for me personally, no, or- for the viewer, mm.
0: for the viewer. I think I mean I'm saying maybe it's not all on the artist. I think sometimes the viewer has to come in with open arms and open eyes mm-hmm. and accept what they're walking into. And if they're not willing to do that, then maybe that's not the work for them.
1: Right. Yeah, I don't like to make work that sort of s- says what it is.
0: Yeah, I can see that. How do you deal with artist statements and how do you deal with like a, a text for the pieces that you're producing and then books and stuff? You sent me stuff you're, you're writing. How do you mm-hmm. deal with? So if you're so adverse to laying out specifics and in, in sort of what's happening, how do you deal with that written word and what you're proposing?
1: It's never been a problem because there's so much to write about (laughs) because there's because there's all the ideas that go into the work that are really specific. So that's what I would talk about. Like what type of things? So, for example, in 2012, I did a piece called Bird Brain. What that was was uh, it was for the the Pacific Standard Time um, exhibition. Yeah. I was invited to do a piece in response to the work of Guy de Cointe, who was this artist that I showed you in our studio visit. Amazing, by the way. Amazing artist, French artist who lived in Los Angeles in the late 70s and early 80s and who died in the early 80s in Los Angeles.
0: I had no idea who, I, I had never seen the work before. It's and really good stuff. Your remnants off of your performances reference that right. in such a beautiful way. The correlation between those two things is really quite amazing.
1: Yeah. So that that piece was a direct response to his work. And then at the same time, I was very interested in Alex the Parrot, who, do you, do you know who Alex is?
0: You told me this the other day, but explain it to the audience.
1: So Alex the Parrot is dead, unfortunately, along with Guy de Quinte. So it's these two sort of, in my mind, historical. They were not important together, important by the way. Alex <laughs> and the, the They were only <laughs> together in my mind. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but uh, an animal behaviorist named I, Dr. Irene Pepperberg bought Alex from a pet store. So it was just a normal when, African gray. This is fairly recent. This is fairly recent. I feel like it was the 80s.
0: By the way, not so recent anymore. Right. But but it's but, like close to 40 years ago.
1: But they did work together. They worked <laughs> together for, for 30 years and I'm not sure when he died. So I'm thinking it was probably the 80s. 10
0: years ago, maybe. Five ten years ago. Cause
1: anyway. I only discovered him well after he was. The parrot kicked it. Not, the parrot kicked <laughs> it. You, know, you put it so bluntly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a
0: parrot, but it's so, a, But this is the remarkable thing about the parrot.
1: An African grey. Yeah. Um. The remarkable thing was that Dr. Irene Pepperberg worked with him for all these years to basically with the goal of proving that this parrot could utilize signs in a way that was more sophisticated than just simply mimicking uh, sounds. So Alex could identify different materials, wood felt, plastic. He could. He knew all his colors. He knew numbers. He understood the concept of zero. And then he could put words together in sensical.
0: So he wasn't just repeating what he heard. Right. He was forming his own.
1: Yes, he was forming his own uh, meaningful phrases. Dr. Pepperberg never used the word language. She was really... Um, careful about saying that he was capable of using language, but she talked about it in terms of signs. Like he, he, he used signs as tools. And he also taught another bird. So he passed on the knowledge that he gained
0: to a different bird.
1: Yes, he started to. The reason why I kind of put the two together was because Guy de Quintet's work dealt with language and sort of the deconstruction and the construction of language and also a lot of the sort of um, coding behind it. To get back to your question, that's what I would write about. Like these two really fascinating in my mind, like, I think these are incredibly fascinating realms that I decided to sort of collide into this performance that was created by um, myself and then these amazing performers that I cast for a specific reason. So there was a a professional auctioneer, a seven-year-old child, a stand-up comedian, a stuntman, a stutterer, a sign language interpreter and an Armenian theater director. And we all work together to kind of like suss out these questions about language. Um, and a lot of them weren't performers. They were just, you know, I wanted to work with them because of their, like for example, Beck who stutters um, has never performed in anything before uh, until this. So that's what I write about. It's amazing. <laughs> it's fun.
0: Yeah. And it's totally devoid of giving specifics about why you're doing a specific thing within the actual, the actions of the performance. Right. Which I guess... Which can
1: be kind of abstract.
0: Right. And boring is all get out. But to give the information and talk about, like, some of the things that are important to you, and I think it informs the pieces that you actually see. Right. To actually be there and be present with them at the same time. hmm That's really interesting.
1: That was sort of... I feel like that was the problem with end, is that these... I, I've worked so many, uh, a number of times on texts that were written by other people or I was sort of making work in conversation with. For example, I did a piece at LACMA that was a procession of performances that were all based on poetry uh, written by this amazing Catalan artist named Joan Brosa, Joan Brossa, who's Catalan, and he, he also passed away. So it's it's sort of, I'm having all these conversations with various people who've made things, and then end was when I decided I'm going to have... A conversation with my own writing and i found that a little less interesting to write about oh really yeah like that it became i think that's in many ways the most amorphous messy um piece i've ever done and that was it was actually really tricky and still is to write about
0: well it's like my interviews here on the show i don't want to talk about myself well i talk about myself all the time i don't want to talk about <laughs> i don't want to talk about my work mm-hmm. Because that's not what's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is other people's stuff mm-hmm. or like how you get inspiration from all these other things that right. sort of influence what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're talking about the performers and how those sometimes are collaborators as well too. Mm-hmm. Do you use the same performance performers? Like when you do different shows, do, do the same performers come in or do you cast think, different people each time and to should, learn from them or how do you do it?
1: I should back up and say, I think they, they are always collaborators. Every once in a while, there's a like technician that I maybe wouldn't call a collaborator because they're just maybe executing my ideas, but that doesn't happen very often. I'm always interested in um, what people have to offer. And because it gives they you might, insights in how to like yeah, change what you're doing in the modes of I sort of... I love being disagreed with. I don't always agree with the disagreement. I mean, I often, if yeah, like it, it very often do not dis- uh, agree, but it... Um,
0: I love the conflict of disagreement. I do. I'm I I'm do the type too. of person I love that conflict. Yeah. I want to have a disagreement. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have it easy.
1: I agree. I Absolutely agree. But oh, wait, what were you saying about?
0: Uh, do you recast people?
1: Oh yes, I do. The little girl that was in Bird Brain. I that was the second time I worked with her. I worked with her when she was six years old, um, and I did uh, kind of my most theatrical piece, which was I restaged a play written by Peter Honka, who's uh, an avant garde playwright. Um, and I restaged his thesis play from 1966 or 67 called Offending the Audience in which performers come out on stage and they are in street clothes and they talk to the audience directly and kind of deconstruct the theatrical experience and then at the end they say and now we are going to offend you and they just start slinging these crazy um, names at the audience and then it ends. Names of what? Just like... uh, uh,
0: Like dirty words?
1: (laughs) Sort of, but they're not that dirty. Like, they're try- it's trying to be dirty and sort of political, and that's maybe the only part of the play that feels dated. At times it feels really cute, and at, at other times it's pretty, it's pretty harsh. Um, his, his goal was to be very harsh. I mean, it was 1967, so the, the, the state of theater was so different than it is now, and, and, and it was a little bit offensive and shocking, I think, then, but still not as much as he would have hoped. I decided to recast, I decided to, to stage this piece, which I love, but it's kind of tedious if you're just. Is it uh, tedious to watch? I, th- well, I think it would be with adults. So I cast all children to do this. Play. I saw
0: that. Yeah, I saw that piece.
1: And um, it wasn't tedious at all because you could really listen to the text because it was being delivered by children who were not pretentious. Who that had, wasn't how who it was originally like, conceived? Not at all. No, no, no. That's cool. In fact, I didn't ask for his permission, Ooh, which I should have ye. because I, I didn't, I didn't know how this worked. Um, you know, my, it was a 90 seat theater. Yeah. So I talked to someone in theater who said, oh, it's, that's not enough people. I wouldn't bother to ask for but the rights. But that's rice. not true. <laughs> it's not true at all. But they, so they, they, they got in touch with me maybe like a year later and said that I owed them 80 euros. <laughs> so,
0: 80 euros yes. is what it cost. But you were like, it's for- the... This-
1: for three nights, and I was like, oh, I'm perfectly happy to do that. It's my you know." I'm, I'm
0: sorry I didn't ask.
1: Yeah. That's worse I, than the 80 euros. I, no, I apologize, and I said, but now that we're speaking, this is exciting. Do you think that you could ask Mr. Honka what he thinks of this? I would love to know. So did you get feedback? No, they ignored me. They, of course they did. They didn't want to have anything Any to type do with of that communication.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. On a side note, I used to sell parrots at PetSmart. Really? My first job out of uh, undergrad. So you know African greys? I did. Uh, yeah, quite a bit. Wow. My first job out of undergrad was to be the manager of the specialty department. So I ordered all the animals and then I had to clip their wings and all this other oh, stuff.
1: wow. Where do you order those animals from? Oh,
0: it's a terrible business. Sure. Yeah. It's really, it's not, it's not a great business. Anyway, side note, there's so many questions I could ask about all this stuff, but I have a couple things I want to go into. Well, one thing we're talking about, like my issue with performance is mainly that sometimes it will... It's tedious as fuck sometimes. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's probably, I explained this the other day and I have a theory on performance.
1: Because you can't walk in and out.
0: Yeah. So yeah. basically 80% of all artwork is not great. Mm-hmm. And then you've got 15% that is pretty good, but the remainder of it is really good, right? Mm-hmm. Well, performance is the same way, except you can't get the fuck out of the room. Right. On the 80% that's bad. You're sort of locked in a space and you can't, you can't. Physically walk out, but I always feel bad because Mm -hmm. you owe it to an artist to sit through and see if it gets better or like appreciate the time they've taken or not taken Mm -hmm. to put into something. We had an interesting conversation the other day in the studio in your take on this as well, too, about how performance artists sometimes put the audience in a place of being uncomfortable. Yes. And whether or not that's acceptable or, or I think it is, by the way, I don't think it's not acceptable, but when it becomes a line that you cross or when, how do you deal with that as a performance artist to to deal with sort of that function of, it's supposed to challenge people, but when does it become too much of a, a gimmick? If that's a good word, I don't know what a word would be for it, you know?
1: I'm interested in people being able to do what they want to do. I'm interested in, in, in making a work that's, I think, uh, captivating and interesting and stimulating enough whether it's for half an hour or an hour, that encourages the audience to stay with it. To want to be there. Yeah, to want to be there. I have no problem with discomfort if it's for a reason and if it's authentic and honest and not just making people uncomfortable to make people uncomfortable.
0: Right. But that often often happens.
1: It often happens. I mean, like, for example.
0: Is that a crutch? What is it? Like in performance, do you think that's a crutch?
1: A crutch that it makes people uncomfortable?
0: Well to yes, to is that an easy reaction? Is that a a quick fix to a work? Is it an easy reaction to get to make somebody uncomfortable? When sort of the harder cue would be to go in and make them want to be there for an hour and a half.
1: Yeah, I think it's harder to make them want to be there for an hour. That's what I mean. Definitely. No, it's really easy to make people uncomfortable. That's what I'm saying. You just touch them or you look them in the eyes.
0: Yes. You're like in there, or you're in their space. Right.
1: Yeah. So that's really easy. Yeah, and, I, and, and if you can't sense that it's for a greater purpose, then...
0: So you, you teach. Mm-hmm. How do you teach and explain this to your students ab- about that aspect of
1: it? I just went through, like, a really specific experience teaching. Uh, my students were presenting their final uh, projects, and one of them was seven students who put together what they called the ap- Apocalyptic Carnival that sounds great. <laughs> and
0: it sounds great.
1: <laughs> it was um, they they transformed the classroom and they used all these lights and things were moving around and there wasn't smoke but there were flames and oh that's intense. Um, there was a projection and there was really really loud karaoke and everyone had very developed costumes and there was one person who was teaching. The, the audience or, you know, the, the, the carnival goers, how to apply condoms to bananas. And it was total chaos and really loud and very quickly smelled so strongly of what is that methane, like a gas that you can like light on fire oh because of the fire, because of the fire that it was pretty impossible to stick out for longer than five minutes. That's, I, I that's short. I, I started feeling nauseous about five minutes in so did you leave? I, I backed out towards the door to get some air.
0: Were they doing the performance for you?
1: They were doing it for the, whole, the rest of the class.
0: Yeah, but you were the teacher.
1: Yes. So, <laughs> and my thought was like, I have to be here to support them. I have to like stick to To grade through. them? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you don't see the performance. How are you going to,
0: I couldn't physically be
1: there. I could, it, Well, it ended up being a really huge problem because the poor students, in some respects, poor students felt really like they'd been shafted because I wasn't the only one. It was really hard to breathe and and it was super loud. And so it was it was just a, um, a kind of massive shock to the to so many senses. A, so
0: there was an exodus by multiple people.
1: Yeah. And but I kept going in and then I would kind of like take a breath and go out, take a breath, go back in. But they did feel like we weren't there to support them. And so in our critique Basically, what I told them you know, in offering them a little bit of guidance was that the audience needed a bit of guidance. There was no beginning, middle, or end. We didn't know when it started. We didn't know when it ended. We were not given any sort of direction as an audience. So that is where, for me, it fell flat. And I felt uncomfortable because of these sensory challenges. But had there been someone leading me through and saying, like,
0: you may step out of the room every five minutes if you feel like that statement at the beginning of the, of the thing would have like set up a, a proposition for the rest of the people. Right. Where or, people probably would have come back in.
1: Yeah. Or or, 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 even just, you know, take me from one place to the next. Guide so that me. I understand you're supposed to, uh, interact with Santa Claus and learn how to put on a condom with yeah. Molly. And so, you know, I feel that, Basically when I, I see a lot of performance and I see a lot of performance that I think is not very well done. Um, and I see sometimes this 5% of really good stuff, but the, and I feel like the really good stuff considers the audience's experience and thinks about that from yeah. the very beginning. And I, I, what I tell my students and what I always think of myself is, is this piece generous? I really want to be generous with my audience. I'm not interested in a masturbatory experience that is on view for the audience. I really want to share something with them and offer something to them. So
0: I think that's a we that's the word that you used the other day in the studio and I forgot about it. Yeah. But I remembered you said something that was meaningful to me. I just couldn't remember what it was. And it was the word generous mm-hmm. and being generous to that audience and I think it's really I'm glad we circled back around to that. And I can actually I will write that down right
1: now. <laughs> circle it. Circle it.
0: <laughs> um yeah no that's fantastic. Can we Talk a minute about, and I don't want to go into. But, uh, and,
1: I, and I should say yes. that those are great students <laughs> and that
0: I'm not. Well, yeah, but here's the thing. All students are trying to figure out where they're at in their place right. and how they're doing the work. Mm-hmm. So any of the information that you're providing is actually good information.
1: And I was telling them that the, the, the there was a ton of potential in each of these parts. It just had to like be brought together to be really good. Would so. it
0: gives a, an example of how these sort of disparate moments can like And line up. Can line up and play an action into something greater, but you need to have sort of a role for them in the space too.
1: Right.
0: If they don't have a role within how they're existing, then how do they exist further beyond that to an audience that is a layman who doesn't understand what that proposition is.
1: Right. And especially when you're dealing with a moving audience. I guess this
0: is the question I had about Philippe too, Mm. is there are so many different actions taking place at the same time. So the language that you're using to connect all of those things into a single event, mm. because that, that visit to the armory has to be, it's a singular event, mm-hmm. but you're doing 8,000 things at once. Right. And he's got 20 different, like the light, the shades the went shutter, up and down to change the, the lighting, screen, the screen, the sounds from outside that lighting, were being projected inside. Yeah. yeah. So if you don't have a narrative built and, and it can be a loose narrative, you don't have to tell it, a story, and I guess a narrative for me, means you just have to have rules, right? Mm-hmm. And sort of guidelines for, for what takes place. Actually, this leads us into a really interesting thing. Um, <laughs> today you sent out, and I, I got this email, and I was like, oh, she's sending me something to read right before we're going to do this interview. This is killing me. <laughs> I was like like I spent five like, days reading yeah. I was like, Jesus. No, no, I was totally fine. I was like, oh, what else is she sending me? That was the tone that I used in my head. Um, you sent a really interesting thing, and you wrote an email, and you're like, I'm sending this to all of, I'm paraphrasing, I sent this to all the creative folks I know. Are,
1: who I thought who might appreciate Who it. might
0: appreciate this. And it was an incomplete manifesto for growth. And it was written in 1998 by Bruce Mao. And he is a design consultant. So mm-hmm. it's not even an artist. Mm-hmm. But it is a list of, uh, what is this, 43 different sort of line items to sort of live by when he's creating. Mm-hmm. And it was really, inter- by the way, we both went through this before we started recording. Not all of them are good. No. Some of them are a, sort of bad.
1: There's a bunch that are bad. Oh, yeah. outright bad. But there's some great ones. <sighs> um, number two, I think.
0: Number two is, is a great. Yeah. But like just listening to a couple, allow events to change you. Process is more important than outcome. Love your experiments. Capture accidents. Uh, drift, study, begin anywhere. But number two is forget about the good. And they give a little example of what that means to each one of these. And forget about the good is good is a known quantity. Good is what we all agree on. Growth is not necessarily good. Growth is the exploration of unlit recesses that may or may not yield to our research. As long as you stick to good, you'll never have real growth. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was such an interesting sort of an amazing comment. And that's, I, that's the one that stuck out to me immediately. Yeah. Because you do it in the studio all the time. I make bad shit constantly and i'm i'm struggling constantly to even understand what my viewer is going to look at when they see an object or something else Mm. i have real issues with that like complex like internal arguments with myself and whether or not i'm producing the right stuff Mm. and this is such a great statement to think about when you're producing yes right so thank you for sending that today
1: i remember um in 2010 i believe it was maybe 2011 uh when he had his gallery in Chinatown, he actually gave me a space for free for a few months to work because I was in a real rut. And um, I was basically, I just hold myself up in this studio and made a bunch of bad work <laughs> that ended up turning into something that was decent. But the, the point is, I, I can't remember who told me this. I went to an opening and I was just feeling shitty. And they said, you know, you just got to, you just have to basically make work for the trash can. You That's make true. it as if you're gonna throw it away. You just don't be precious. And I think there's another one in here that says like you gotta Something. make mistakes. Yeah. So, you know, and it's and that really helped me in a huge way. To it's just still, imagine you, like nobody you, even ever has to see this. It's in, just
0: in the moment though, proactive. it sucks so hard. It sucks. It and sucks it so way. bad. It's it's such a bitch. Uh, yeah. I have so much. Where we were just talking about this. I'm making a new piece, but it's made the armature. The inside is made out of pieces that I didn't use. Like mm-hmm. all this material and stuff from pieces that were terrible that yeah. just weren't good. So now they're becoming like the internal parts because I don't have any money to buy new wood, you know, but like, yeah. <laughs> but you learn something from it. All of that is a process of figuring out where you need to be in the next piece. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Um, and I
1: wonder if I even, you know, performance making came out of that because I used to be an object maker and I just never really liked the objects that I made really? and it's, I find it really depressing. Your
0: objects are like those remnant pieces. I'll be honest, the The only reason I like approached you to be on the show at the very beginning, because I didn't know the performance hmm. was because of the objects. So funny. They're so good. <laughs> They're really, really good. And I photographed those things when I went into that space at China Art Objects. I was like, this person has got to be an object maker. It doesn't. I see so much bad sculpture that when I saw like a good sculpture and it was the remnants of a performance, it just mm-hmm. sort of blew me away. <laughs> But you did tell me when I walked into the studio, you were like, those were very specifically placed too. Yeah, they were. I mean, it doesn't take away from the fact that object and that placement, it, it was a really good sculpture.
1: And I think those objects are about a lack of the body for me. Really? Yeah, like you, you could, well, no, that piece wasn't in there. But you could see sort of like the paint that had rubbed off on the objects. and
0: I wanted to get into this and we don't, I think it's important for the viewers to sort of listen to this as well too, but performance, I barely make enough money selling my work as a sculptor Mm -hmm. performance work. It's hard to, to have a market for that and be in a gallery and have representation and everything else too. So people understand who are listening to you do a lot of grants and there's a lot of institutional support, right? Mm -hmm. How do you, is that how you function as a, as a, I mean, you have, you teach. So you're, you have your
1: teaching is, practically benevolent so that's you, you know what I mean though but yeah it,
0: this is that type of thing too so to survive as a performance artist you need to apply for these grants and be supported by institutions mm-hmm. as well and is have that, a day job and have a day job but does that become yes we all yes you have a day job as right. well too but do we does that become difficult after a while like to be reliant on those things like the grants and the the institutions
1: I, I don't think I rely on the grants I think they help in a major way but I, you, you can't rely on them because it's so unpredictable. Um, but I, how about
0: the institutions for actually showing the work? I rely on them. Yeah. That's important, right? I mean, it, it, more I, than the money almost.
1: Yeah, I, I used to do shows in the very beginning that didn't have budgets. I don't, I don't do that anymore because I can't, I can't have all of the production come out of my pocket.
0: Um, Which most artists do, and it it's for the scale that you're doing though, it would put you bankrupt. Yeah. Exactly. You got a family.
1: Yes. I don't have a credit card for a reason. <laughs> I d- I Cause do, I would, I do. And I go in the hole. Yeah.
0: Constantly. Yeah. It's not good.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's too dangerous for me. So I, I, you know, I kind of, I try to keep it simple and I work with really simple means and the people I work with are paid poorly. Um, but they're paid. So I feel proud of that. Um, but, Yeah, I mean I just try and make the best work I can make within the means that I'm given.
0: And that support from the institutions to actually show is the big thing there.
1: Yeah, and they give me budgets. Like the the next two shows I have, you know, we'll have we'll have budgets. They're both in Europe. So that's that also changes. That's exciting. They they tend to
0: That's really exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm leaving on Sunday to go to Europe actually. For the Monaco. That's for yeah, I'm gonna be giving a lecture on the role of dance in my work in French in Monaco
0: oh my god this is one of the things we didn't talk about by the way I can come back dance yeah we had to do it later but like dance and the choreography it was another major thing that runs through the artists that you gave me and everything else and I want to talk about I want to talk about uh Noguchi and Martha Graham Mm -hmm. and those type of things as well too another show hopefully
1: yeah yeah and the other two shows one is in Montpellier France and one is going to be in Graz Austria
0: are they all new pieces
1: uh, Montpellier is Birdbrain, which they purchased right. the, the video installation, and then I'll oh, be congratulations. making. Congratulations! Thank you. I'll be making work um, in addition to that, and then Graz is a brand new. Uh, what would you call it? Like a a big sprawling project that um, will involve many collaborators
0: and that will eventually go on your website as well too I assume. Yeah, after it happens. Okay. So everybody time. listening please go check out Emily's website because it's it's
1: horribly not up to date. Yeah, but it is a <laughs> wealth
0: of knowledge for anybody looking at performance work or anybody looking at work in general. Just really good art. Thank you for taking the time to be on the show. I really appreciate
2: it. And thanks for having me. Yeah. Have a good one.
1: Thanks. thanks.